So our scripture reading today is from Titus chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, uh, we'll read first the first two verses and we'll skip down to verse 9. Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Down to verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Back in 1971, a movie was released called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I'm curious this morning, just out of curiosity, how many of you have seen that 1971 movie? Okay, so a lot of you. Uh, or maybe you've seen the 2005 remake with Johnny Depp, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Who here has seen that movie? A little less, actually. Uh, they both are based on the book by Roald Dahl from 1964 called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. How many of you have read that book? Still some, but much less. I don't know if that's a sign of our culture or not. Okay. But the, the movies, they vary from each other, and they, they both vary from the book somewhat, but the main storyline is the same. It is a story about a young boy named Charlie, who along with four other children get the opportunity of a lifetime by finding a golden ticket in their Wonka chocolate bar so that they can get a tour of the chocolate factory and get a giant prize and we find out that that prize is winning the factory, owning and running the chocolate factory upon Wonka's retirement. Once they get to the factory, their tour guide, who is Wonka himself, who I, if I don't say so myself, is kind of a weirdo, um, gives them a tour of the factory, and one by one, he eliminates the children based upon their worthiness to run the factory, to own the factory, until one child is left. And you guessed it, that child is Charlie. And so Charlie, the movie comes to a a completion, the book comes to a completion when Charlie wins the chocolate factory. There's one point, though, that I want to talk about from the 1971 movie, which is different than the 2005 movie and is different from the book. It is when they go into a room, and in that room are some very large geese, and those geese are laying very large golden chocolate eggs. I actually brought one of them with me this morning. 
okay. So they are laying these golden chocolate eggs, and the eggs fall down on an egg decator, which I just happened to have this morning. So as the eggs fall down onto the egg decator, we can determine if the egg is a good egg or a bad egg. So if the egg were to drop down onto it, oh, it's a good egg. Okay. Okay. And then so we, when we pick it up, okay, and then we could grab another egg. This is another one. It's a different one. Okay. If we were to drop this one down, we would see that's a bad egg and it would fall down into a garbage chute. And that egg is no longer it's going to go to Pastor Glenn. I don't know what that says about Pastor Glenn. <laughs> okay, but in the movie, there is a girl named Veruca who climbs up onto the egg decator. The, the egg de- decator immediately goes to bad, and she falls into the garbage chute, and Willy Wonka says she was a bad egg. There's many people in this life that view the meaning of life as somewhat like the egg decator. It just depends on how much good you do, or lack of good, or how much bad you do, or lack of bad, which determines your eternity, which determines your worthiness in this life, or or determines if you're going to go to heaven or paradise, or nirvana, or whatever you would call the afterlife, depending on your belief system. It's all dependent upon your goodness. Are you a good egg, or are you a bad egg? That is what matters. Now, there are many different belief systems in the world, and they vary vastly in in how they view the afterlife, and how they view their practices, whether it be Hinduism or Buddhism or or Islam or or Judaism or Mormonism or secularism or atheism or Christianity. Some believe in many gods. Some believe in one god. Some believe there are no gods. Some believe you can become a god. And some believe even that nature is God. And what their gods look like, you can guess, very vastly as well, depending on which belief system you would adhere to. Some believe God is distant and he is unknowable. Some believe that he is cruel and vengeful. Some believe that he is ever-present and impersonal, just like a force, kind of like in Star Wars or some sort of a combination of any or all of those things if they believe in many different gods. So there's much disagreement then on the things that truly matter concerning God. Like, does he exist? What is his character? Is he all-powerful? Is he a he? Is he the only true God? It's an important thing then for us to understand in that, and that is we can't all be right because we differ so greatly on the things that truly matter. But I do want to say, in a nutshell, there, there's one thing that I think most belief systems on the surface would say, yeah, we agree with that statement, and that is our eternity, or at the very least our worthiness in this life, is dependent on how good we are. It's dependent on what good works we do. 
Okay, so, so whether we are talking uh, about any of those major religions of the world or even atheism, we would say it matters that we are good and that d- determines then our worth in this life, that determines our, our worth in the next life, that determines our relationship with whatever God that I believe in. Okay, so we will be judged then accordingly, kind of like a big cosmic scale, depending on our goodness. So if we are more good than bad, the scale will tilt to good and we will be rewarded. If we are more bad than good, then it will not be good for us. That is where most of the world would say, yeah, I agree with that. Here's the problem, though, with that kind of thinking. The measure of what is good varies vastly depending on which belief system you adhere to. So, so let me tell you, you what I mean. A good Hindu, for instance, would not measure up to good on the scale of a secularist. Because the secularist would say, you know, the caste system, not having everyone be equal, that's not good. That is wrong. A good Buddhist would not measure up on the scale of a Muslim because they would not be adhering to the five pillars of Islam. A good Muslim would not measure up on the scale of an atheist because of their treatment of women, because of their treatment of minority groups. You get the idea. What is good is the definition that, that changes depending upon the person. So the cosmic scale of good versus bad, it, it, it doesn't work because we can't agree on what is good and what is bad. There is one belief system, though, that, that varies from all of those other ones, and it is based on the teaching of our Bible. It's Christianity. And in the Bible, we see, of course, a definition of what is right and wrong. In, in many places, we say, do this, don't do this, live this way, this is right, this is wrong, this is morally evil, this is morally good. We have all of those things. In fact, the passage that we're talking about today is going to talk about how we should live, what is right. But our worthiness, our entrance into eternity, our relationship with God is not based upon any of those things. In fact, the Bible's very clear that our relationship with God and our entrance into heaven is only based upon the grace and mercy of God. And that is where we vary from all of the other religions and belief systems in the world and our natural self to say, I just got to be good. And if I'm good, then I get to heaven. This is what it said in our passage last week, which outlines that really good from Titus 3. It said, We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, filled with envy and hatred. So when we got on the scale, it would say, We were once all bad eggs, every one of us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So do you hear it in there? It's not because of our works. It's not based on how good we are. It's not working our way up some sort of scale of karma or multiple successive reincarnations. It's not fulfilling the five pillars of faith. It's not reaching a state of enlightenment. It's not being one with nature. It's not living out some sort of ethical or logical morality. It only comes from the grace of God. 
So we've said it many times this year, and I'm going to say it again. We need to be saved from something. We are bad eggs. We, we, do, we are bent toward the bad. So we need to be saved from our sins. We need to be saved from our warped way of thinking and, and any sort of man-made system that we've had of morality and, and the consequences of all of those things. But we are also saved for something. This is where the good and bad actually does come in for us. Once we have been saved, then we are saved for every good work. We are saved to do good works. And unlike those other belief systems, we are not saved by those good works. We are saved for those good works. We are saved so that we might live a life characterized by godliness and a God-defined morality as opposed to any man-made system. So today, as we finish up this book of Titus, I want to focus on a few truths that we are called to remember in this last section, and we'll see those truths played out in two different areas in our lives, inside the church and outside the church. Okay, so we're going to see that in our passage this morning. If you would take out your sermon outline, I'd appreciate that. It's on the back of your bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, it's on our website, hbcmanchester.org. And have your Bibles open to Titus 3. On the bulletin is going to be, or on the outline is going to be all of the scripture passages I talk about this morning um, and most of Titus 3 as well. So if you could have that out um, in front of you. Like I said, we're going to focus as we look at our passage about our good works inside the church, how we interact with other believers that we worship alongside, and, and our good works outside the church in our community, at work, at our school, with our neighbors. And does our goodness look differently dependent upon who we are surrounded by? Okay, and so that's, that's a question that we'll talk about today. So look with me, if you would, the end of Titus Uh, 3 and verse 1, it says there, remind them to be ready for every good work. And we're going to talk about what's in between those phrases, but be ready for every good work. See in that verse, the first thing that we are called to remember, and that is do good works outside the church. If we could throw that up on the screen. Do good works outside the church. Again, verse 1 says, be ready for every good work. And those works that the Apostle Paul is referring to here in the context of our relationship with non-believers, which we'll talk about in just a second in more detail. But the, the idea is that as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ, that whenever possible, we should seek to have a good relationship with the non-believers, and, and we should seek to create a viewpoint from the non-believers that is favorable, that is positive. That when the non-believer thinks about you, they think that's a person who does good things. They do good works. When the community thinks about the church, they think that's a place, that's a people who do good things. They do good works. They are ready to do good. That's a big part of the reason why the people hope when, uh, when 
we ask for money to be given to the fellowship fund, thousands of dollars come in to give out thousands of dollars to people every year in our community to take care of their needs. It's a big part of the reason why dozens of people of hope participate when we do the roadside cleanup and pick up other people's trash along the side of the road. It's a big Part of the reason why people of hope fill backpacks each month to give out food to kids, the hungry kids at school. It's a big part of the reason why people of hope join together for hope for the hungry and, and feed hungry people in our community and give food out for the Bread of Life shelter every month and give gifts out to kids every Christmas. It could go on and on with good works that the people of hope do for the people of community. And as we are doing that, we're producing a favorable impression with our community. Now, are there limits to what we can do or what we should do to create a favorable impression in our community? Are there limits? Of course, there are limits to what we can do and should do to create a favorable impression in our community, mainly compromising the truths of Scripture and the genuineness of our faith just so that people might like us or just so that we might fill the chairs on Sunday morning. For instance, we can't compromise our faith by joining alongside the non-Christian world in a sinful stance or participating with them in sinful actions but we should seek to have a good relationship with our community. Why? Why does it matter? Why should we do that? Well, mainly so that they might see that what we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ is something worth having. If we are not people who do good works, then why do they want what we have? What's the difference? What's, what's worth coming to be with us. I want to talk briefly from our passage this morning about two ways that we should remember to do good works outside the church. We see our passage starts with the word remind. And so this, because this word remind is used to start our passage, we're going to rightly assume that these works that we, the church, are called to do are not new commands, right? So Titus and, and his, his churchgoers wouldn't have been like, whoa, never heard that one before. But no, these are things that the church had already been called to do. They needed to be reminded to continue to do, to be ready for every good work. So first of all, as we're, we're seeking to do those good works outside the church, we should remember to submit to authorities. So if we could throw that up on the screen. Remember to submit to authorities. Look again at verse 1. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Now let me ask you, for what purpose should a believer be submissive and obedient to a secular or even an anti-Christian government? Why should a church seek to do the good work of submitting to the ruling authorities. What's for the sake of the gospel? It's so that the believer, the church, ultimately God, would be seen in a favorable light in the community so that the gospel might spread. Now in contrast to to that, 
when Christians are disagreeable, when they are willingly non-compliant, when that, what that does is puts a negative stain on the church and overshadows the gospel. If we are constantly rejecting everything that leadership does, then guess what? We look like the world, and then the world says, well, why would we want what they have? They're just like us. Now, Titus was living in Crete, a place that was very anti-God, and yet Paul still said to him, remember to submit to the authorities there. Paul said the same thing to the Romans, and, and was Rome a great Christian place? No, it was very anti-Christian place. And, and listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. In other words, if someone is in authority over you, how did they get there? Who put them there? God put them there. It's not a mistake that someone's in authority. If God's like, ah, messed that one up, I'll fix it in the next election. No, no God put our leaders in authority. So we need to be careful by saying, that's not my leader. That's not my president. That's an illegitimate president. Not to God, right? God placed our leaders in authority over us. Now, are there times when a Christian or a church should disobey the government? Yes, there are. Specifically, when the government is ordering us to do something that is against the commands of God. So there are are multiple uh, examples of that throughout Scripture where the believer says, no government, no leader, I'm not going to submit to that because I'm going to follow God and not man. So in the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh ordered that all of the male babies be thrown into the Nile, the Hebrew midwives said, no, we're not doing that. Moses' mother acted out in civil disobedience. She said, no, I'm saving my son. In the book of Joshua, Rahab is praised as a person of faith for disobeying the king of Jericho and protecting the Hebrew spies. The book of Daniel, there's a few examples, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, we're not bowing down to that golden idol to worship him. Okay, We're going to disobey the command of the king. And Daniel said, I, I'm going to disobey the command of the king, and I will openly pray to my God, even though the command, the edict was, only pray to the king. In the New Testament, there are several examples of, of the disciples being commanded, being told, do not share the gospel, do not spread the gospel, but they disobeyed that command of the authorities and shared it anyways. How then can we come to terms with a passage like Romans 13 and, and like Titus 3 that tells us to submit and obey the governing authorities when there are multiple examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. Well, even in those examples in the Bible of civil disobedience, there was still an attitude of submission by those who were disobeying. They didn't raise up with their guns and with their knives and say, hey, we're going to take it, we're going to overthrow this government. No, they said, I'm going to obey God rather than man, and I'm going to take the consequences from the government 
for that disobedience. I will willingly go to the fiery furnace. I will willingly go into the lion's den. I will willingly go into prison for that disobedience to obey the government and the consequences of my actions. The point of all of this, though, is that we should, whenever possible, seek to produce a good impression with those outside the church by submitting to authorities and should obey except when it is contrary to a command of God. Again, for the sake of the gospel. So if we disobey just to be contrary, we disobey because it's my right to stand up against this terrible government that is against everything that I believe. We create a bad impression and we compromise our faith by how people view the gospel. On the other hand, we don't just obey the government to create a good impression if they are telling us to disobey God, because that will taint the gospel message as well. That says the gospel message is not important. So it's a fine line sometimes, I understand. But it's about creating an impression with the community that allows the gospel to spread. So look back to Titus 3, verse 2. Okay, So it's not just about our actions, but it's also about our attitudes, which I think is the harder one of the two. It says there, remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So as we're seeking to do good works outside the church, we should also remember to avoid quarreling and slander. Remember to avoid quarreling and slander. So besides blatant disobedience to the government authorities, we should also avoid being quarrelsome and slanderous type of people. We should be striving for our relationships with governing authorities, with the police, leaders at our schools and our jobs, those in in political positions, to be civil, to be respectful, to be considerate. Our passage says, be gentle and courteous. For what purpose? You know what purpose? So that the gospel might spread. That God would be seen in a favorable light. Those people are different. They are gentle. They are courteous. Even when they disagree, they are gentle and courteous. In contrast to that, when Christians are seen as the most difficult person in the room, when they are overtly opinionated and angry on each and every issue, no matter how unimportant it is, then I think we lose the chance, I think we lose the right to stand up for the things that are important, like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people in our community We can't disagree with people who are in authority. Uh, Sometimes we can, sometimes we must, but how we disagree is key. As they say, we can disagree without being disagreeable, right? In other words, we can respect others and, and love others even when everything they stand for is against everything that is important to us. For what purpose? so that the gospel might spread. People that are anti-God were us before Christ came, right? 
We were anti-God. We need to remember that, that Christ came to die for all of those people that are, we are seeking to slander and that we are seeking to quarrel with. Now, listen to what Paul said to the church in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. So even our words can be good works to those outside the church. So let me give you a for instance. A few weeks ago, I ran into someone and he said, Hey, what you said to me last year really has, I, I've taken that to heart. That meant so much to me. I thought for a second, I thought, where did I see this person last year? And what in the world did I say to him? And so after I, I racked my brain for a minute, I, I said to him, what did I say to you last year? He said, well, your church was over at Ted's Trackside Grill in Winthrop, and you were paying for everyone's lunch all day that Saturday. And I came in, and and you paid for my lunch, and I said, why would you want to pay for my lunch? And you said, well, there's good people in the world, and God loves you, and I love you. And he said, I have not forgotten that this whole year. And that is what we're talking about this morning. Our words can be seasoned with salt gracious. So it's not just a tasty lunch that he had that day. He had some tasty words that day to say, there's something good about those people over at Hope Baptist. There's something different about them. Now, let me remind you that you do the good works outside the church in response to what God has already done in you so that other people might want that same thing. Okay, so we do in response to the gospel, good works, so that other people might hear the gospel. And then it, and then it multiplies. And they accept the gospel, and then they do good works, and then other people see that in them, and so on and so on. That's God's plan. That is his only plan. Saving people so that they might tell other people, That's why we have missionaries, right? It's not only outside the church, though, that we need to do good works, but also inside the church for the same purpose, for the sake of the gospel. We see in our passage as well this morning in in verses 12 through 15, Paul wraps up his letter to Titus and he tells him to greet those who are delivering the letter. He gives them instructions for how they should take care of the missionaries as well as those who are in the church. And then he says in verse 14, look there if you would, He says, let our people learn to devote themselves, there it is again, to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We see the second thing that we are called to do there, remember to do good works inside the church. Do good works inside the church. So the works in the church certainly pertain to service that we do, ministry that we do. People of hope are are doing that when there's a call to take care of someone in the church who has an urgent need. The people of church of, of hope rise up to do that. We had a testimony last week from Mark about that. There's a call to take care of someone's need. The people of hope rise up to do that. It's also true in, in many ways when people have need for food, when people have need to, to take care of them, people rise up and do it. 
There's a call for, for need in children's ministry or in men's service projects or women's fellowship or hospitality ministry, various ways of people of hope take that to heart and come with a heart and with hands to serve. And I think we understand that. We talk about that a lot, serve in ministry, it's important. But I want to focus on two ways as, as we're wrapping up here this morning that we should remember to do good works inside the church, similarly to how we should do good works outside the church. Now, just so that we are clear, when I say inside the church, I'm not talking about being in this room or in this building. I'm talking about relationships with other believers who just happen to meet in this room, in this local church. Does that make sense? You're with me on that? Okay, so our relationships with other believers, are should that be different in how we do good works versus how we do good works out in the community? So, First of all, as we're seeking to do those good works inside the church, we should remember to submit to authorities. Sound familiar? Just like we do outside the church. So if we could throw that up on the screen. Submit to authorities. I want you to look at the verse right before our passage this morning from Titus 2, verse 15. Paul said this to Titus, who was the leader for the church in Crete, and in fact, multiple churches in Crete. He said, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So Paul was saying to to Titus, as a leader in the church, you've been given authority to lead, to teach, to correct, to admonish, to encourage the people of God in which direction they should go and how they should live. That, of course, was based upon what Titus had learned from God and what Titus had learned from Paul and what Titus was learning in his uh, studying of Scripture. Where did Titus, though, get that authority to lead? From God, right? He was placed in that position of authority by God. What then should the response of the church be to this leading, to, to this teaching? What should the reaction of the church body be to the pastors, to the elders of the church that have been given authority by God to lead in that church? Anyone know? What's the word? Obedience, submission, our favorite words, right? We should submit. Adhere to what is being taught. Obey the commands that are being given. Listen to the command in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So why should we submit to the leaders of the church? Because they're placed there by God? Because one day they will have to give an account to God for how they have led? And for the sake of the gospel... How does submitting to our leaders help the gospel? Because when we submit to our leaders, there is unity in the body. And when there is unity in the body, then the gospel spreads. And we'll talk about that more in just a second. So when a pastor or elder tells us this is the direction we should go, we as the church say, I submit to that. Now, are there limits to when we should submit Are there times when we shouldn't follow the pastors and the elders of the church? Are are we times when we should question their teaching and say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Times when we should disobey. Times when we should not submit. 
Are there? Yes, of course there are. And a pastor or an elder teaches us something that is contrary to what is in Scripture, we should say, no, 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 wait a minute, that's not right. When they lead us in a direction that is away from God, we should say, I'm not following that. When they are living a lifestyle that is sinful, we should challenge that. And unfortunately, there are countless times that that has happened in churches, that a pastor, that leaders have taken the church in the wrong direction, that have lived in a sinful lifestyle, that have taught heresy. But does the fact that sometimes, maybe even many times, pastors and and elders and churches fail, they fall, they sin, they teach something that is wrong, they push an agenda that is sinful, does that negate the command given to us by God in Scripture that we should submit to our leaders? Does it negate the command? No, it doesn't. We submit and obey in any and all circumstances when our leaders are not sinning in their actions or in their teachings. In other words, just because there is the potential for our leaders to fall doesn't mean that we should never submit. No, we submit unless because of the sin of the leader there is reason not to. Now let me ask you an important question. Does that mean that you will always agree with Pastor Glenn and myself and Pastor Brian and the elders of the church in the direction that we are going? Of course not. In fact, if you agreed with everything that we said, then we would not need to use the word submit, right? The idea of the word submit is, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that, but I will yield to someone else's direction and leadership. There have been, believe it or not, some times in the church that I have disagreed with Pastor Glenn. Shocker. One time it came up, though, in an elders meeting years ago, Pastor Glenn brought uh, to the elders an idea. This is the direction I think we should go, and I didn't really agree. I thought it was not a good idea at all. I brought that up in the meeting, said, hey, I don't think we should do that. Talked about my reasons why. Glenn talked about his reasons why. And the elder said, I think this is the direction we'll go. We'll go in the direction that Pastor Glenn has said. Okay. And this is where the submission comes in. The next Sunday, when we were giving that announcement to the church uh, about this new direction that we were going to go, who do you think passionately got up and said, I'm excited about the new direction that we are going? It was me. It was me. Because I submitted to Glenn's leadership and the leadership of the elders to say, this is where we are going to go. And it turned out to be a great thing. Turns out Glenn knows what he's talking about sometimes. (laughs) So the point that I want to make is when a church body submits to its leaders, there is unity. And when there is unity in the church, the gospel spreads. That brings us to our final point this morning, which is also around that unity. One more time, in Titus 3, verse 9, it says there, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So as we're seeking to do good works inside the church, we should remember to avoid quarreling and division. We could throw that up on the screen. Avoid quarreling and division. Why should we avoid quarreling and division in the church? It hurts the gospel. It tears down 
those involved in the disagreement. It tears down the unity of the church and it makes the gospel significantly less effective in our community. There are so many times in the early church, as it is outlined for us in the book of Acts, that there is a direct correlation between the unity in the church and the growth of the church. So it says the the people of God were together and they had all things in common and the Lord God added daily to their number. There was unity and the people in the community looked at that unity and said there's something different about those weirdos. Nobody is that unified. I want to go and see what they have. And so the Lord added to their numbers. But I want you to listen to what happens when there is quarreling and division in the church. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, who again was a leader in the church. He said, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So when there is division in the church, it's like a disease. It spreads, and it spreads, and it spreads until it kills the host, and the host is the church. So we must remember to avoid it. We avoid division so much so and quarreling so much so that Paul says in verses 10 and 11 of Titus 3 that that those who, who are regularly causing division, if they are not repentant of it, have nothing to do with them. Strong thing to say, isn't it? That's how important the unity of the church is. Because where there is unity, the gospel spreads and the church grows. Worship team, would you come back up? This morning, as our service is coming to a close, I want to remind you that your salvation is not based upon what good you do in your life. It's not about doing more good than bad. It's not about, I'm a good egg. I've worked really hard. I've done a lot of good things. In fact, I've done so many more good things than the person down the street from me, the person next to me, or across the church aisle. That's not what our salvation is based upon. Our salvation is based only upon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And and this morning, I want to say to you, if you've never said to Jesus, hey, I need you to forgive me of my sins, and I need you to come into my life, I need you to be my Savior and the Lord of my life, don't leave here today without doing that. Talk to me today, talk to Pastor Glenn, talk to someone here and say, I need Jesus in my life. Do that today but we've been saved for more than just to get forgiveness of our sins. We've been saved for a wonderful life, a life that is filled with good works. We're saved for every good work so that the gospel might spread, so that people might look at us and say, they're different and I want what they have. So let's pray together. God, may you use this group of people for your purposes. Remind us to do good works, not to gain salvation, but in response to the salvation that only comes from you. We pray now in the name of our Lord and and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.